Thank you very much, team. Excellent. Excellent singing for all of us, I think. At least from what I could hear. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. We thank You for this privilege that You have given to us. That we should be able to gather in Your presence. That uh, we should be able to hold in our hands copies of the Scripture. Lord, we ask that You would speak Your Word to us this morning. That You would teach us Help us to learn and apply. And Father, grant that my words might in fact be yours. That you may have the honor and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are continuing our series on the on some of the various characters that we find in the scriptures especially in the new testament and uh the section that um we are to look at this morning is well it's it's available in in Luke's gospel but I'm referring to or in Mark's gospel but I'm referring to Luke's copy of it same story almost identical words uh, Luke chapter 21 uh and verse 1 If you're using the brown Bibles. I don't think any of you are, but if you are, it's page 1635. Um, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. I find it interesting um, the, to observe which people mentioned in the New Testament are named and which are not, and in what context. For example, in the, in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, there is a character who shows up, one Simon of Cyrene. And he is the guy who is conscripted to carry the cross of Jesus because Jesus himself was too physically weak from the beating and the scourging to carry it. Um, Matthew and Mark and Luke all mention Simon. But only Mark refers to him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. To me, that suggests that Simon's sons were known to the Christian community of which Mark, and by extension Peter, was part. 
And then there's the woman that Jesus met at the well at, at Sychar that uh, was the subject of Wade's message last week. How is it that John did not record her name? Um, did John simply forget? I mean, after all, she was a Samaritan and a woman. Um, or did she just somehow fade into the background? Or was her name unknown to the community uh, to which John was writing? And so it was not important to mention her name. Uh, you know, just curious little things. And then we come to this unnamed widow uh, who obviously played a part in Jesus' teaching of his first disciples. She made an impact, that's pretty obvious, on both Jesus and those disciples. How is it that she remains without a name? Is it possible that she never came to Jesus as Savior and Lord? That she never became part of the Christian community? Now we usually look at this little story by itself and when we do, we tend to see the comments of Jesus about the, this widow as a lesson in giving. And to some extent, there, there might be some valid lessons to learn there. But the incidents recorded in the scriptures are not usually just recorded like beads on a string. Um, we need to pay attention to their contexts. There's an adage that says, never read just a verse of scripture. An understanding of what comes before and after an understanding of how the human author uses language, how he refers to people and places, what he says and sometimes what he does not say, will help us to understand the meaning that the Holy Spirit intends for us to see. So, let's read this in context. And I'm going to back up uh, in, uh, to chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, just, just a paragraph before, um, just because of time. So we started at chapter 20 and verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, 
The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, the wider context of this uh, that both Mark and Luke record, uh, the wider context is this happened during what we call Holy Week. That period between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Uh, Jesus had declared himself the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, as he entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, while all the crowds were celebrating. And then he cleansed the temple of the marketeers who profited on money changing and the sale of birds and animals that had been pre-screened as suitable for sacrifice. And in the process had raised the ire of the Jewish religious authorities. Uh, Jesus and the disciples had then spent the night in Bethany and then returned to Jerusalem where Jesus was peppered with theological riddles intended to trip him up. Um, The scribes and the Pharisees were trying to find some reason to accuse Jesus. That they, so they get rid of them. But then that tactic failed. And at some point, one point, uh, Mark records that no one dared ask him any more questions. Um, so then Jesus posed a riddle to the scribes about Messiah's identity. And Not surprisingly, they couldn't answer that riddle either. But what Jesus was doing was reminding the scribes especially, but also the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that their understanding of the Scriptures was woefully inadequate and that they were in danger of missing the whole point of the covenant, of the law, of the temple, and of the sacrificial system. They were in danger of not even knowing the God they pretended to worship. And we read this little passage. Did you notice anything? Anything particular? Well, in the, the most obvious thing, I read over a chapter break. And while the chapters and verses make it easy for us to find specific parts of the Scriptures, they are somewhat arbitrary and at times interrupt the flow of the narrative. Neither the chapter verses, chapters nor verse divisions were part of the original text. They, the chapters weren't at, introduced until the 13th century. And the verses, not until about the 16th century. So, you know, they they are not part of the text, really. And that's unfortunate because we tend to read it as if a thought ends at a chapter. But it doesn't. Or it doesn't often, anyway. The story of the widow and her offering is in the context of the condemnation of Jesus, of the scribes, and the inevitable and 
imminent judgment of God. The context then needs to inform our interpretation of the widow's actions and her commendation by Jesus. Jesus condemned the scribes and unmasked their hypocrisy. You know, they, they who like to walk around in long robes, clearly not working folk. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, places of honor at feasts. For a pretense, make long prayers. Pretense. They're not even praying to God. And they devour widows' houses. Now, we don't quite know what that phrase means, specifically. And there are a number of interpretations. Some believe it to be a practice by which widows are encouraged to make gifts to the temple. Um, gifts that are far beyond their means, giving that would ultimately force the widow to sell her property, probably at below market value, which would put the wealthy in place in a position where they could make a significant profit. Others suggest that it's the practice of lawyers, that is, the scribes, who were entrusted with the oversight of properties. Although a lawyer was entitled to remuneration for his service, some paid themselves at what was referred to as a lavish rate from the estates in their care. Still others believe that likely refers to the scribe's habit of sponging off the hospitality of people of limited means. But while the scholars are unsure of the exact meaning of the phrase, the result is clear. Many widows um, were destitute. And widows, when you look at the Old Testament, widows, along with orphans and cripples and lepers in that society, they were among the most vulnerable people. And they were supposed to be cared for. The method of care it's interesting because it was designed so that their dignity would be preserved. It wasn't just a handout. There were some of that, but mostly it was it was designed so that they could retain the sense of personal dignity. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 24, it says, When you reap your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back for it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And it says, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. 
So there's a carrot there, right? The promise that the Lord, if you do all these, did it this way, then the Lord your God would bless you in all the work of your hands. But if you decided that that wasn't, you know, you weren't going to do it, well, and if the vulnerable members of society were abused in any way, God reserved a stick. In Exodus 22 and 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. But the religious elite of Israel of Jesus' day were guilty of an inadequate understanding of the covenant relationship between God and the nation. As a result, they had developed a religion of works by which, through the observance of laws and regulations and sacrifices, they attempted to buy the favor of God. They failed to understand the grace and mercy of the God who wanted to redeem them. And the result was that they set up a system that would feed their own lust for power and prestige and possession while keeping the general populace down. No wonder then that there were frequent uprisings of various groups as they reached the end of their endurance of such corruption. But we're in the same kind of danger if we do not properly understand the Scriptures and the power of our God to redeem and to restore. And if we do not appropriate what He has already accomplished for us, in Jesus. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. They all contributed out of their abundance. The rich folk in the temple that day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were not without observers. They continued their play-acting, doing their religious thing in a way that they hoped would be noticed and lauded by others. And whether it was long prayers allowed or large amounts contributed to the temple upkeep, the whole intent was to gain the admiration of others. God can't be fooled. And Jesus saw the real truth. Their prayers were empty, their gifts merely leftovers that cost them nothing. That's interesting. If you look at the contrast, look at what David, the most highly esteemed of Israel's kings, look at what David did. David made a number of foolish blunders in his reign. Um... At one point, he apparently doubted the ability of God to save by many or by few. And so he chose to conduct a census of all the fighting men of Israel. 
God's condemnation of that act resulted in a plague that cost thousands of lives. And then David was commanded to raise up an altar on Araunah's threshing floor and to make a sacrifice to the Lord to stop the plague. And so we pick up the the narrative in 2 Samuel 24, in verse 21. Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Araunah said to David, Let my lord the king take it, and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, The Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Araunah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. The key sentence is, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Now while it's difficult to uh, determine the value of ancient currencies, I think it's safe to assume that David made Arauna a very rich man that day. The sacrifice by David was costly. But not so for the rich folk in the temple of Jesus' day. While their gifts may have, seen, may have been substantial, they didn't cost the donor much. And that their gifts were made public meant that they were not giving to the Lord God at all. Instead, they were buying public acclaim. Much like modern politicians who promise large public works projects in order to get your vote. And Jesus would have none of it. Because of the hypocrisy of the scribes and Sadducees and the Pharisees, the condemnation of God was about to fall. In just a few years later, the temple was destroyed so thoroughly that just as Jesus had said, as for those, these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as those of you who have visited Israel can testify, the temple There's nothing left of the temple. There's only the retaining wall that held up part of the temple mount. That's it. But we skipped over a couple of important verses. Go back to verse 1. Luke 21 and verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, This poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had.
to live on. And I can almost hear you thinking, okay, now comes the pitch for more giving. Now comes the guilt trip. Not so. In the context, what was this widow doing? Well, Jesus, it's mentioned here. Here's a woman, a widow, we don't know what age. Remember, the men didn't live long because they frequently got killed in, in either war or industrial accidents or whatever. So we have no idea how old this woman is. But she is living in abject poverty. Her offering, everything she had to live on, wouldn't even buy a small cup of coffee at Tim's. But that's not the point either. This unnamed widow made her offering to the living God while the others made their offerings to mammon, to the God of public opinion. And from that perspective, her gift is commendable and far more valuable than the others. But why did she give everything? Now, from one sentence, it's pretty hard to know her motives with any certainty. But given the corruption of the religious system and Jesus' condemnation of it, and especially given the immediate context of this story, it seems likely that this woman gave it all in an attempt to buy God's favor. So Jesus is not praising this widow. Yes, he does state that she has given more than everyone else because she gave from her poverty. But Jesus is not saying that her giving of everything should be taken as an example of how we should give. In fact, her gift the fact that it was everything she had stands in condemnation of the system that would even permit it. A failed system that kept her from knowing the truth. I've heard it said, and I... I you know, I went through all my commentaries. I've got about five commentaries on Mark and Luke. And I went through them all, and they all approached this passage as a message on giving. How, how could we miss the point that so easily? But, you know, when you, when you look at the Scriptures... You know, I've read a number of sermons online and so on. and I've heard, you know, it said, well, we should be doing the same thing, giving everything we have. Well, to a point, surrender, sure, absolutely. Surrender everything. Surrender ourselves. We, We don't own ourselves. We don't own property. We are merely trustees of what the Lord has given to us. But there is only one person in the New Testament to whom Jesus told, said, 
sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. There's only one person that Jesus said that to. And true, some, including many of the early disciples, chose to leave everything to follow Jesus. But that specific command is not given to everyone. The only universal commands are basically two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then, at the end of Jesus' ministry, He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, how these two commands are worked out in your life, in the specifics of your situation, is another matter. And God is smart enough and big enough to be able to individualize the ways that these commands are applied. Okay? But nowhere is there a general command that we should give, we should sell everything and give it all to the Lord. Surrender everything? Absolutely. But there's no point in all of us living in poverty. We can't do very much from that perspective. But let's get back to our passage. In the context of our passage, Jesus is condemning the scribes and their evil religious practices, one of which was to devour widows' houses through their corrupt teaching and practices. This widow has just been devoured. The false system of works religion has just taken everything that she has in the world. And our hearts go out to this widow because she has fallen into the trap of the scribes. She believed that she could buy her salvation through her gift. Jesus saw the corrupt system taking the last dollar out of the widow's pocket in desperation, hoping that maybe her two coins would buy some blessing. She was trying to be dutiful. The rabbis had said that with alms you could purchase your salvation, so she was trying to buy her way into heaven, trying to buy relief from her desperation, her destitution, her loneliness, her pain, her sorrow. What she didn't know was that the answer to her deepest needs was sitting just a few feet away. The answer to her plea could not be purchased, not even with everything she had, but she could have it for free. But sadly, it seems that the widow didn't hear the invitation. It seems that she didn't come to Jesus. She didn't receive the salvation that He would accomplish for her in just a few days. She apparently did not respond to the love of God outpoured in Jesus' blood. Didn't respond to His resurrection. 
Isaiah had cried out with God's word at one point. He said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. There's a rich banquet spread for every one of us. The invitation is wide open. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money. Without price. Or as Jesus put it, come to me, all you, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus did it all. He died on that cross. He bore the burden for us. He took the penalty for our sin. And then three days later, rose from the dead. The invitation is wide open. But we need to respond. It's as simple as that. Our God is incredibly gentle and gracious. He'll not force Himself on you. His arms are open. And He's waiting for you to come. What will be your response today? Father, help us. Help us to learn the lesson that You intended. Lord, we look for You. We look toward You. We, we long to be near You. To, to know Your forgiveness to know Your mercy, Your grace. So Father, we ask that You would speak to our hearts through Your Holy Spirit. Draw us close this morning that we might bring You the heart of worship. A heart that longs to celebrate what You have accomplished for us in Jesus. And we give you all praise and glory and thanks in His name. Amen.